This podcast is intended for a mature audience over 19 years of age and is provided on an educational and informational basis. Any material presented is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for professional medical advice or as an endorsement or medical claim by Patterson Media, Everything Podcasts, or any advertiser. You think the whole country will legalize marijuana? Yeah. How long? Five years, maybe. Mm -hmm. You know, it may uh, be quicker than that. Today on the Canadian Podcast, we talked to the Butter Baron, who used to be a black market dealer. I was working as a beer vendor in the stands. You know, who wants a beer? Who wants a beer? You want a weed cookie? Then when cannabis was first legalized, he decided to go legit, but he still kept running into the law. The idea would be to grow, process bakery items, and then sell in the court. And day one, 8 a.m., we're out of business. They shut us down because no edibles are allowed. The Butter Baron's journey from black market dealer to cannabis tourism policy advocate and campaigner is coming up. Also, why is 420 420? So one day we're sitting on the wall and a buddy of mine comes up, Patrick, and he says, hey, my brother's in the U.S. Coast Guard and a bunch of guys in the Coast Guard are growing some cannabis. The story of 420 involves five teenagers, a Chevy Impala, my favorite band, the Grateful Dead, and a mythical patch of free weed, plus just a little bit of Bob Dylan. That's all coming up after the latest pot news. With the pot news, I'm Jay Coburn. Ontario Cannabis Store is changing its pricing structure starting in September. The changes by the Monopoly Crown Corporation will reduce most wholesale markups that OCS imposes on cannabis products it sells to retailers, lowering its own profit margin. The legal industry has had a rough ride this year, so it's hoped this will be a boost to cannabis producers and retailers. Currently, the OCS markup adds about 31% to the cost of cannabis. The move will reduce it to between 23% and 25%, depending on the product. Canada's federal government could face legal consequences for failing to facilitate research on potential health issues experienced by cannabis smokers. That's according to the former chair of the task force that laid the groundwork for recreational legalization. Anne McClellan was also the federal health minister from 2002 to 2003, and she told the Globe and Mail newspaper that those potential lawsuits could still be a decade away, so there is time to rectify that. And in the USA, no new weed shops will be able to open in New York after a judge blocked cannabis regulators from moving forward with retail licensing. The ruling sided with a veterans group who argued that a program designed to give people formerly incarcerated for cannabis offenses priority for new licenses was unconstitutional. Veterans are also supposed to receive priority licensing under the 2021 legalization law. Fewer than 20 legal storefronts have opened in New York over two years after that legalization, but hundreds of unlicensed shops have sprung up in the meantime. That's the pot news, back to Don. Now for an interview with someone who's had a couple of run-ins with the rougher side of cannabis, back when it was a wholly illegal industry. He didn't let being stabbed and beaten stop him from selling pot when he was an illegal dealer. So he's not letting regulations get in the way of doing business now. But we're not talking to this guy because he's flouting laws. In fact, we're talking to him because he went legit and founded the Canadian Cannabis Tourism Alliance. They're a nonprofit that advocates for better policy around cannabis tourism. 
The Butter Baron sat down with our producer, Karen Habashi. My name is Thomas O'Neill. People call me the Butter Baron of Cannabis. I'm a long-standing cannabis advocate, and I am one of the managing partners of Aggressive Organics Limited. So first things first, why are you called the Butter Baron of Cannabis? <laughs> I want to know the backstory. The name came from a little bit of mischief. So when I was growing up in Toronto, I spent a lot of time in my early years dealing hash and pot. And at some point, I started really getting into edibles and cookies and butter. And I was working as a beer vendor in the stands. You know, who wants a beer? Who wants a beer? You want a weed cookie? Two. Or I'd be at the convention center, you know, oh, beer, rum and coke, rum and coke. Would you like a weed cookie? <laughs> but then years later, 10 bartenders were doing that with my cookies and 15 beer vendors were doing that with my cookies. So I kind of expanded this very lucrative cookie business in the illicit market. And as you do with illegal drugs, every now and then there's some violence associated. And I ended up walking around with a cane and several stab wounds for a while, which wasn't my first knife fight, but the first time that I was unarmed and alone. And as much as I got out of the situation, I earned a bit of a reputation on that day and then walking around with the cane, trying to figure out who sent somebody after me and exacting for a, a little bit of a street justice. People started, oh, the Butter Baron, you know, it was like I became this baron and earned a nickname beyond just that guy with the weed cookies. Tell me, how did you go into cannabis tourism? Cannabis tourism kind of came out of nowhere for me. My partner and I, we've known each other for years. He's a Red Seal chef. And basically coming up to legalization, we took all of our legal money, all of the work we had done, and we were setting up a seed-to-sale bakery business. Butter Baron Bakeries. And our plan was to open in Toronto and just have small storefronts and we had a farm up north. We would purchase it first, but the idea would be to grow, process bakery items and then sell in the core. And day one, 8 a.m., we're out of business. They shut us down because no edibles are allowed. We're gonna legalize, but not edibles. And we're like, oh, you just killed our business. So I ran for mayor of Toronto and went in on the rage and weed ticket, got a job during that time and kind of just disappeared for a bit. And we ended up getting our farm licensed for a grow-off, for a research license. And we did a large scale outdoor organic research project for three years. And in that time, we weren't allowed to make money off of cannabis or any cannabis products or so seeds. I couldn't sell you a pipe while I had that license. But I was security cleared at the highest levels of the federal government here in Canada. And I was personally allowed to carry 357,000 grams with my like personal log cup of like 800 pounds. But I had to burn everything. And the deal was if there's no money on the table, I share my notes with Health Canada at the end of the research project. But it all dissolved at some point. Revenue Canada decided I was going to pay them 30 grand for non-revenue. And I went, there's no revenue here. I'm not allowed to make money. And they go, just in case you do something illegal, we want money. 
we'll call it an insurance tax. And I'm like, yeah, call it whatever you want or f*** off. Uh, and so at the end of the day, I called Health Canada and said, we had a deal that nobody asked me for money and I give you my notes. And they go, well, you should just give them money because they're not us. And I go, yeah, it's the government asking me for money because I have this license that you gave me. They go, you should pay them. I go, or you should cancel the license. Cancel the license and we're good. And then, you know, they did. Okay, fine. And the next day I applied for an ACMPR license for that property. Well, for mine. And then somebody else applied for that property. So we're still kind of allowed to grow quite a bit. Not as much as we used to, but the majority of the heavy lifting is done on the research we were doing. So now we can just do the smaller scale projects, but we can operate. So March 25th, we relaunched Aggressive Organics. And as much as, you know, three years ago, I was looking for $2 million startup to buy a farm and build a farm gate cannabis restaurant. Edibles weren't allowed. So we were like, what are we going to do here? And we just ignored it. Now we're looking at it, but that same property three years later is for four and a half million instead of one million. And it's going to be even more expensive, like add 30, 40% to the price of restoring it. So we're like, screw that. We're out of this. And we just went mobile and we tacked on basically cannabis beverage service. So cannabisology, event planning, cannabis bars, and then infused dining. And we just tacked that on to an already existing catering company that my partner runs. He's like, oh yeah, we'll just put in cannabis offerings. And that's it. So then we kind of like sat there and went, what industry are we in? <laughs> right? And we looked at, we looked around and went, we're not in cannabis. I'm not touching the product. My company can't touch it. We're not doing anything with it. We're not selling it. And when I do an event for you, you would basically hire me to come and you would buy your cannabis, hand it to me. I would prepare it for your guests and then serve it. So I'm a, it's a service. So when we looked at it, our company is really in that hospitality area. And the more I started getting into that on LinkedIn and talking about it, the more people I met that had these tourism models for their cannabis businesses across Canada. And I met Dr. Susan Dupay, who is a cannabis researcher attached to the University of Guelph. And she said, hey, we're starting this thing. Maybe you can come in and make a bit of sense of it. You seem to be a crazy dude that gets it. So I went in and there was this team of really interesting individuals working on cannabis tourism. And we basically sat down and created the Canadian Cannabis Tourism Alliance. Uh, that was about a year and a half ago. Now we're at like 70 members, each representing a different business, each a tourism-based business, so hospitality, travel, tourism. That's kind of what people are doing. So you have hotels. Mary Jane Manor is part of our membership. High B&B. Companies like this, they're all looking for like this, how do we fit into it? And it is this broader concept of tourism. It's these models that can work towards influx of tourism, whether it's domestic or international. So what we found is we had a lot of powerful friends too, right? So once we came in and we're like, hey, we're doing this tourism thing, hotels and restaurant groups started getting interested and going, well, what are you building over there? <laughs> you're like, is this our entry point? And you're like, yes, it is. So, you know, recently... We were in Ottawa 
with the Minister of Tourism, who's the Associate Minister of Economic Development. I was trying to hand the guy a joint and get a picture of him taking it. He's like, not on your life. <laughs> he goes, do you know how much it is just to get a cannabis personality and take a picture with them as a minister, even a liberal minister? He's like, you're lucky just to get the pick. But then, you know, you found that it's like cannabis is now not just the focus of Health Canada for safety's sake. Yeah. They had three years to prove how unsafe it is. All right, well, the data is there now. So when we're looking at it as an organization with tourism, we find if we stick to the academic and the data-based arguments and then talk to people who actually want to talk to us, they'll talk to the people that don't want to talk to us, for us. So it's a lot easier to walk up to the Minister of Agriculture with the Minister of Tourism and say, could you guys talk about cannabis as a product and how the trickle effect taking the shackles off of the cannabis plant can work for, say, the hemp plant Mm -hmm. and what that looks like. So this is, you know, that's kind of what led into the tourism. And then it's just this machine that we kind of found ourselves in. We had a meeting last night and it was like, just (laughs) in one and a half hours, I've got like three pages of notes of here's, we got to do this. We got to, and it's like, we're talking to the town council of Niagara Falls and we're talking to the people from Regina. And, you know, there are cities and corporations outside of cannabis that are so interested. And then they're just starting now that we're like, we're starting to get rid of that corporate stigma. That was Thomas O'Neill, founder of the Canadian Cannabis Tourism Alliance and managing partner at Aggressive Organics. But you can call him the Butter Baron. I think this is the one holiday that San Francisco celebrates more than any other holiday. An event where everyone can unite. To enjoy smoky weed. 420. It's a number. A phrase and a date that's synonymous with cannabis. Cannabis, cannabis, cannabis. On April 20th every year, there are gatherings of stoners all over the world, from Ljubljana to Cyprus to Denver. In Toronto at Nathan Phillips Square, crowds gathered to smoke up together. It's less of a protest these days and more of a celebration. We're going to spark up all at the same time. We're going to count down. We're going to spark up at 420, 419 now. Let's start counting down. Five, four, three, two, one. On 420 in Washington, D.C., there's the National Cannabis Festival with big-name musicians and a lot of food trucks. In Vancouver, the 420 events keep their counterculture protest vibe by remaining unlicensed and unofficial. Vancouver is emerging from the haze of the pandemic with not one, but two major 420 events planned. One here at Sunset Beach, where it's historically been. The other here at Thornton Park near Pacific Central Station. There's been epic events over the last number of years other than the pandemic years. And uh, we're bringing it back with a vengeance. Neil Magnuson is behind the event at Thornton Park. But he in a lot of the world, years, it's still illegal, like the UK. The event in London is more of a peaceful protest with a heavy police presence. Arrests are not uncommon. As you can see, the police are getting some early numbers on the scoreboard here. Still, people turn up to Hyde Park on the 20th of April every year and smoke cannabis, a Class B controlled drug in the UK, in direct view of the police. 
Some are protesting prohibition. Others are looking for a reason to get high with their buddies in the park. Boys and girls, we're back again. Cannabis is illegal, but that doesn't stop the people in Hyde Park on 420 smoking all day. What's, what's he all about? I don't know. <laughs> but why April 20th? Where does 420 come from? You might have heard someone say that 420 comes from California's criminal code, but that's not right. The 420 code applies to obstructing entry on public land. Nothing to do with cannabis. Attention all units, 420 in progress. It's also not a police radio code for cannabis. That's another rumor. Then there's the Bob Dylan rumor. This stone you when you're trying to go home. This stone you when you're there all alone. But I would not feel so all That's Rainy Day Women number 12 and 35. If you're conspiratorially minded, you might notice that 12 multiplied by 35 is 420. But because Dylan has never said anything about that, it's likely just a coincidence. Another common one is that there are 420 chemical compounds in cannabis, but that's not true either. It's closer to 300. There are loads of other rumors too. People will claim that 27 clubbers like Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, or Janis Joplin died on April 20th, but none of them did. It's been claimed that the Grateful Dead always stayed in room 420, but one of their managers has said that's not true. No, it didn't come from the Grateful Dead, but that rumor is actually kind of close to the truth. Back in 1971, we were at our high school, San Rafael High School in Marin County, Northern California, and we hung out on a place, a wall. This is Steve Capper talking to Cheddar News with his buddy Dave Reddix. We'd sit up on that wall in the middle of campus and we'd do impressions of all the students and teachers walking by and make fun of them and try to make each other's laugh. Steve and Dave were part of a group of five friends who hung out by a wall every day and they called their group the Waldos. Trying to make each other laugh, our impressions of all the students and teachers walking by amongst our group of five Waldos. Waldos because they hung up by a wall naturally. The Waldos were Steve Capper, Dave Reddix, Jeffrey Noel, Larry Schwartz, and Mark Gravich. So one day we're sitting on the wall and a buddy of mine comes up, Patrick, and he says, hey, my brother's in the U.S. Coast Guard and a bunch of guys in the Coast Guard are growing some cannabis. And for some reason, they think that their commanding officer is going to bust them and they don't want to get busted so they decided to let us pick the patch that they would abandon it we could pick the patch they made us a map of where to get the pot and it was out in point Reyes national seashore and for five 16 year old boys this was a no-brainer free weed come on the boys decided they would go search for this patch of weed after school there was a statue of the French chemist Louis Pasteur. That was the location where they'd meet. But they couldn't meet as soon as class ended. This group of stoners were also doing extracurricular activities, and some were even athletes. So they had to wait for everyone to finish up for the day. The time they could meet? 4.20 p.m. We decided to meet at 4.20. We got high there. Then we hopped in Steve's 66 Chevy Impala, and we headed out on our search and we would remind each other, we go 420 Louis. Yeah. 420 Louis, like, we're gonna go meet again today because every day we were seeing each other in the hallways and we we're using that little code. 
So the guys headed out to find the patch near a small U.S. Coast Guard base. So there was a small Coast Guard base, basically lighthouse tenders is what they were. The intrepid, stoned adventurers searched for this mystical patch of free weed, but they didn't find it. So they went out again and again and again. We'd go every week. About the fourth week, we just dropped Louie, and we'd just see each other in the halls, and we'd go 420, and we'd smile. So Louie was dropped. Sorry, Louie. But the Waldos never did find that cannabis El Dorado, but that really didn't matter. Steve told the High Times that they had fun adventuring anyway, and 420 stuck as the code for let's get high after school and go on an adventure. After they stopped searching for the cannabis patch, they continued adventuring. They'd meet at the appointed location at 420, smoke some weed, and head out to the forest and mountains of Marin County, just north of San Francisco. But there were still just five stoners saying 420 to each other. So how did that number, that phrase, bust out of their little bubble? That's where the Grateful Dead come in. Dave Reddick's one of the two Waldos you've been hearing about. Well, his older brother happened to be good friends with Phil Lesh. If you're a deadhead, you'll know that name. Phil Lesh is the bassist for the Grateful Dead, and Dave Reddick's brother introduced them, and Dave became his roadie. So Dave Reddick's, a Waldo, was touring around the U.S. and the world with one of the most influential psychedelic bands of all time. And all along, he's using 420 to mean smoking weed. Today, the Waldos are all still friends. They've launched a website, 420waldos.com, with pictures of things like their old 420 flag, notes and letters that reference 420, that kind of thing. They've also launched their own brand of cannabis vapes. And if you look around, some of their old school friends dispute who originally said that phrase, 420. Memories can be fuzzy 50 years later. In the Especially if you smoke a lot of pot. Full of cloudy dreams unreal. The spirit of our code was just to have fun. Because the Wallows were all funny guys. And we enjoyed having fun and making fun. But not in a mean way. So the spirit of 420 was friendship, fun, and kindness. So perhaps I don't really mind if the origin of 420 is at least a little hazy. Those were hazy days after all. Thanks for listening to the Canadian Podcast. I hope you can join us for the next episode of the Canadian Podcast. Hit the subscribe or follow button to make sure you do. And while you wait for the next episode, why not go to westernbuzz.ca? The Canadian Podcast is an Everything Podcast production in partnership with Patterson Media. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of the podcast team or our partners. This show is intended for a 19-plus audience. Thanks to our creative director, Cliff Dumas, showrunner Karen Habashi, senior writer Jay Coburn, sound design by John Massacar, and thank you for listening. I'm Don Schaefer. The Canadian Podcast the authority on cannabis in Canada. Another Everything Podcast production. Visit everythingpodcast.com, a division of Patterson Media. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast.